Although he probably didn't realize it and only had a split second to consider it, P.R. Childs had a decision to make. Childs was the member of a charcoal-burning crew along Arizona's border with Mexico on a spring morning. The job was most likely routine and ordinary, and no reason to suspect that that particular day would be otherwise. But this was Arizona in the early 1880s, which meant there was also always one large looming possibility, and it chose that day to strike. With little warning, Childs and others watched as several of their fellow workers dropped to the ground as the sound of rifles rang out. Rifles in the hands of Apache renegades. The men had little time to dive into tents or behind other cover and grab their own weapons. Now, the Apache tried what they could to goad their prospective victims out of the tent, up to and including firing a hail of bullets against the canvas. When that didn't work, two warriors decided to rush the tent and take out the White Eyes more directly. As these Apaches started running, Childs aimed his rifle and let a bullet fly. One of the warriors instantly hit the ground, and the other, in an act of self-preservation, turned and ran for cover. The attack was over, and the camp was now safe. What Childs didn't know, couldn't know, was that his choice of which of the two Apache to shoot that morning was not just important to his immediate survival. In one of those strange cases where the gates of history swings on very small hinges, Child's choice to kill one Apache over the other had just set the course for all of Arizona and the Chiricahua Apache. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 96, Peaches. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we discussed how in 1882, the U.S. government again called on General George R. Crook to solve Arizona's Apache problem, even if the bulk of that problem was now down in Mexico. Crook had his ideas about how to best tackle the issue and how to keep it from happening again, but before we can discuss how exactly he intended to do that, we have to jump down once more to cover what was happening with Geronimo. If you will remember from two episodes ago, Geronimo and Hua had joined forces in late 1882 to ambush and kill José Mata Ortiz, who was one of the Mexican officers responsible for a slaughter of Apaches at the Chihuahuan city of Casas Grandes earlier that year. After this victory, the Apache retired back to their stronghold in the Sierra Madre Mountains, but a few weeks later, Hua would lead about 350 of the Apache, including prominent leaders such as Naiche and Loco, to a more remote spot near the Arroz River. Meanwhile, Geronimo and another leader named Chihuahua would stay with the remaining 200 Chiricahua. They would be in this area for about six months, though often moving their main camp between a couple of locations. Among this company was a Sibiku Apache man named Tezo or Tezoe, who was called Peaches by the Americans due to his lighter complexion. We'll get into why it's important to know that in a little bit, but for now know that Peaches remarked that during this time, Geronimo and his band moved, quote, openly where they pleased. The country is so rugged that the Mexicans are afraid to come, 
end quote. It would sound so peaceful and idyllic if you didn't remember the fact that raiding parties were constantly being sent out to pillage any nearby Mexican settlements. And the same thing was happening with Hua and his followers, which was about to have some very unfortunate results. Hua felt pretty secure as the Mexicans generally avoided the high, craggy Sierra Madres in wintertime, and he had avoided raiding in the state of Chihuahua, whose troops he feared over those of Sonora. But... Unbeknownst to him, a large Chihuahuan force had picked up his trail and were heading straight toward him. These troops had been organized in early January 1883 and had made the decision to cross into Sonora to keep searching for any signs of the Apache. These troops were also commanded not to light any fires, either for cooking or warmth, so as not to give away their position and they were mainly comprised of Taramari Amerindians on the Mexican payroll, whom the Chiricahua came to fear for their fierce tracking ability and sheer tenacity. One Apache summed them up by saying, quote, If they get on your trail, even though you are on horseback, they will run all day and catch up to you. End quote. And that's why on the morning of January 24th, 1883, they were able to strike so darn hard. Dividing the company of about 100 men into halves, they attacked from two different directions around 5.30 in the morning. Hua's son would later recount that, quote, they dashed through our camp, firing as they came, end quote. Anyone not killed in the initial assault fled with whatever or whomever they could carry. Eventually, Hua's warriors regrouped, but they were unable to drive the Mexicans off. When more Mexican reinforcements showed up, the Apache were forced to withdraw. The village was sacked and then systematically burned. The battle lasted somewhere around three and a half hours, and when it was over, 14 Chiricahua were dead, with 33 women and children captured and 38 horses and two mules recovered by the Mexicans. This was a devastating loss for the Chiricahua as a whole, as their stores of food, ammunition, and mounts were now all gone in the dead of winter. Even worse... Among those captured were the wife and two children of a leader named Chato, and two wives and two children of Geronimo himself. Among the dead were the wife and child of Bonito. All in all, only four warriors from the entire band were left alive. As bad as it was for his people as a whole, it struck Hua even deeper. Never before had he suffered such a defeat, and it may have severely impacted his self-confidence. Because the dead also included his wife, a son-in-law, and a grandson. More devastating is a rumor that reached Crook months later that Hua had actually been drunk on mescal at the time of the attack. His son would later report, quote, It took a long time for my father to recover from the attack. In fact... I'm not sure that he ever did. End quote. After this point, Hua's influence among the Chiricahua would shrink to virtually nothing, though he would still carry himself like he was still a respected leader. The remaining Chiricahua certainly didn't want to stay where they were or under Hua's leadership, so most moved to join Geronimo and the people under him. As odd as it may have seemed just a few short years ago, Geronimo was now one of the most experienced, seasoned leaders the Chiricahua had. The Apache had lost 
30% of their people since breaking out of San Carlos in September 1881. And outside of Nana, who was positively ancient, Geronimo was the oldest leader around. He also was rumored to have power to avoid Mexicans, which was something people naturally gravitated toward. So despite his negative qualities, which were many, people put themselves willingly under his command. One man would later say, quote, Geronimo was never really a chief, but he became one because of all the trouble, end quote. One person, however, who didn't join his camp was Hua. There are reports that he and Geronimo had a falling out because of the capture of Geronimo's family during the attack. Author Paul Andrew Hutton says that Hua's wife had been a beloved cousin of Geronimo, and so the disgraced leader bore the brunt of Geronimo's wrath for that. But more than that, one Chiricahua man would later say that when a group was dissatisfied with their leader, they leave for another camp, leaving the former leader alone with his family. And this could be what happened to Hua, who took one warrior, his three sons, and four other women and children, and went to live quietly in one corner of the Sierra Madres. It's a sad ending for the cunning and courageous Hua, who will wind up not surviving the year, but now I'm getting ahead of myself. And Geronimo had more problems on his hands than Hua's loss of self-esteem. He now had many, many, many mouths to feed, and both rifles and ammunition were in short supply. And this being Geronimo, his solution was typical. They needed to go out and raid some more. In March 1883, a little over a month since the survivors of Hua's camp came trudging in, Geronimo led a force of some 75 to 80 warriors in a wide sweep of Sonora to gather up animals, food, and other supplies. At the same time, he dispatched a smaller raiding party of 26 men under the leaders Chato and Bonito to curve up into Arizona to raid for weapons, ammunition, and the latest news about what the White Eyes were doing at San Carlos. We can safely ignore Geronimo's group for the time being, as it will be this smaller force under Chato and Bonito that will set in motion the next chapter in American-Apache relations. So after spending some time raiding and killing as they headed north, Chato and Bonito entered Arizona on March 20th, 1883. It had been nearly a year since the Chiricahua had raided into Arizona. The last time was when Geronimo had quote-unquote liberated Loco and his people in April 1882. And that meant the Americans' collective guard was down. And so it was on March 21st, the day after entering Arizona, that this raiding party fell on the charcoal camp where P.R. Childs was. I won't go over the details again, except to say that the two warriors to rush the tent were Bene Actine, I hope I'm somewhere at least in the ballpark on that one, and Tezoe, or Peaches. Childs ended up shooting and killing Bene Actine, while Peaches managed to escape. And historian Dan Thrapp, quoted by historian Edward R. Sweeney, points out that if Childs had killed Peaches instead, then the entire course of Arizona history would have been different, and maybe one day I'll get around to writing that alternative history. We'll get into why letting Peaches live was such a big deal, but for now, the attack was instantly reported to Fort Huachuca, which I really should talk about more in depth sometime soon, yeah, it's on my list, which sent out troops to investigate. 
Benayaktene's body was found on the scene, and soon some angry locals would decapitate the corpse and post the head on a pole in Charleston before the scalp, including the ears and eyebrows, were sent along to Tucson because this is the era of grisly trophies. And we've now arrived at another time where I'm just going to hit the fast-forward button through all the comings and goings of this raiding party and concentrate on some important parts. But if you want all the stats, they ran through Arizona and part of New Mexico in six days, traveling more than 400 miles, killing 11 people, only losing one man, and returning home with a lot of stolen animals, ammunition, and weapons. Okay, back to the important parts. During this raid, the following also happened. First off, two men were dispatched to see former Apache captive and army scout Merigildo Grijalva, one of the few non-Apache the Chiricahua trusted, to ask about conditions at San Carlos. It was one clue that maybe, just maybe, the Apache would be willing to think about the idea of returning to the reservation if conditions were right. Also, on March 28, 1883, the Apache encountered the family of Judge Hamilton C. McComas, who had stopped for a picnic at a picturesque spot on the road between Silver City and Lordsburg, New Mexico. Long story short, Judge McComas was killed while giving his wife and child time to flee. Not that it did that much good because his wife was killed shortly afterward and the Apache abducted six-year-old Charlie. The kidnapping of Charlie McComas turned into a national incident with everyone incensed at his abduction and the brutal murder of his family. When Crook eventually goes after Geronimo, the return of Charlie McComas was listed among his top priorities. Now, Hutton does make the incredibly correct observation that the Apache killed people and abducted children, especially Mexicans, all the time. But then they take a blue-eyed blonde child and kill a prominent white couple, and suddenly it's the sort of thing people could not tolerate. Alright, the last thing I want to highlight from this raid across Arizona is that Peaches decided to part ways with the Chiricahua and go back to San Carlos. Now, there are a couple different versions of what happened. In one version, Peaches told army officers that he slipped away in the dead of the night, taking off his moccasins so as not to wake the other warriors, and then walking such that he didn't leave a trail. In the other, probably more true, version, he came to the decision to leave the Chiricahua and return to his own Sibiku people who were at San Carlos. Kinship meant a lot to the Apache, and though some of the raiding party opposed it, Bonito gave him his blessing to go be with his band. In fact, he gave him a gun, horse, saddle, and supplies, and told Peaches, you know, vaya con Dios. This decision is going to be very momentous in just a second. As the raiders made their way back down to Mexico, they must have been amazed that they had yet to see a single soldier. Helped along by a whole lot of luck, the army had been dumbfounded by the raid and unable to respond in time. Crook himself was at his headquarters in Prescott, so any news relayed to him was a day or two behind where the Apache actually were. And there was so much bad information going around that it was unclear if the raiders had come up from Mexico or were Apache that had slipped out of San Carlos to cause mischief. And this question wouldn't be decided definitively until March 25th, so the day before Chato and Benito headed south of the border again when Indian agent Wilcox down at San Carlos finally made a count and found that everyone was where they should be. 
The regular army patrols that were out there were working under the assumption that any Apache coming out from Mexico would use their usual corridor along the Palencio Mountains, which are on the border of Arizona and New Mexico, just north of where I-10 crosses today. However, Chato and Bonito crossed 100 miles away from where the patrol was, and so missed any soldiers that may have been on the lookout for them. And it's the frustration over this raid that would lead Crook to write to the Secretary of the Interior and gripe that the Chiricahua, quote, were the worst band of Indians in this country, end quote, and that he would be, quote, glad to hear the last of the Chiricahua were underground, end quote. But while the general was fuming, the Chiricahua slipped effortlessly back into Sonora. By all measures, their raid had been a huge success, and they returned to their families and bands laden with supplies, animals, guns, and ammunition. They also found that Geronimo and his group had also met with great success, returning in early April 1883 with huge herds of stolen livestock and other supplies. They had also cut a great swath across Sonora, though exactly how much damage they did varied by who was reporting it. One notice in Tucson, which claimed to be based on a dispatch from Admiral Seo, said that Geronimo and his party had killed 93 people, 27 of which were Americans. Another tally put the death count at 115 men, women, and children. Whatever his grand total was, Geronimo must have been in high spirits. The raids had provided for his people. Their losses had been few, and they had been able to ride and plunder with impunity. The smart money said that he had no way of guessing exactly how soon everything would be turned on its head. So it's right around this part that he could have used a Han Solo character to yell at him not to get cocky. Back in Arizona, Crook was not happy. He had been gearing up to make moves against the Chiricahua for months. In December 1882, so three months before Chato and Bonito put everyone on high alert, Crook had recruited 125 Apache scouts from San Carlos, with a goal to be ready to cross the international border within 10 days. Unfortunately, unexpected delays pushed this back to February 1883. In the meantime, Captain Emmett Crawford was patrolling with the scouts, and he would write to a friend that Crook's object was to get what Apache they could to come in voluntarily, but then be ready to go in and physically retrieve the rest. Crawford would also receive a message from Crook informing him that the Chiricahua had been badly beaten, referring to the Mexican attack on Juas camp, and that maybe some of the Apache would be heading north again. If that was the case, it was time to reapply the strategy that had worked during Crook's first time around, whip the Apache militarily, and then extend the olive branch. Crook's message read, quote, Keep a sharp lookout and deal them a death blow if possible, end quote. Crawford did as ordered, even sending scouting parties to the Animus Mountains along the border to look for anyone attempting to cross into the U.S., after that turned up nothing, the captain then sent small reconnaissance parties into Mexico in March, with a few more in April. These ultimately were unsuccessful in finding the Apache as well, with many of the scouts skittish about what would happen if they actually did run into the full force of Geronimo and the other Chiricahua. Crawford, meanwhile, was growing weary, bored, and a little impatient. 
He was, by Crook's orders, stalking the wildlands, avoiding civilization and out of communication with the rest of the world. And his scouts were worried about running into both the Apache and the Mexican army. So Crawford bemoaned to a friend in a letter, quote, I suppose George Crook will keep me down here for some time yet. End quote. In historical retrospect, this line is deeply ironic, as Crook was even then planning something bolder than Crawford could dream of, and the captain would have a front row seat for all of it. To avoid excessive foreshadowing, Crook had been thinking about entering Mexico and taking the fight to the Apache where they lived since he had gotten to Arizona. And it shouldn't be that surprising, as it was the same play he used to subdue the Apache in the early 1870s, show up where they least expected it, give them a good thrashing, and then set generous terms. As you might imagine, there was a lot of logistical factors that went into this bold plan, and Crook was hard at work on those. But what really tipped the scales and up the timetable was the man I have hinted at several times during this episode would be so very, very, very important. Do you remember his name? That's right, Peaches. After taking his leave from Chato and Bonito's raiding party, Peaches had headed to the camp of a white mountain Apache leader living at San Carlos. However, Lieutenant Britton Davis, another of Crook's promising young officers that we discussed last episode, had scouts and secret police working all over the reservation to catch anyone or any group that might be trying to sneak in. So, in late March 1883, he got word from his secret police, Hutton writes that the intelligence was from none other than Mickey Free himself, that there had been a break-in, though it was unclear who or how many had snuck onto the reservation. Marching overnight to the camp of this White Mountain leader, Britain and 100 scouts were in place in the wee hours of April 1st. When dawn came, they rode into the camp and arrested Peaches, as well as the man harboring him. And it's just about here that Peaches decides to roll on his former comrades. Turning full stool pigeon, rat, canary, state's witness, or whatever you want to call it, Peaches told Britain all about Chato and Benito's raid, and the route they were most likely to use. This information turned out to be useless, as by the time Peaches was telling the soldiers this, the raiding party had already crossed back into Mexico. The arrest here is also where we get the story that Peaches told the soldiers about having to sneak out of the raiding party's camp without shoes and escape in the dead of night, most likely to make it more believable that he was not a hostile player anymore. The capture of Peaches was music to Crook's ears. For his plan of cutting off the Chiricahua in Mexico, Crook needed four things to be in place. First, a reason to launch military action, which Chato and Bonito had provided so readily. Second, permission from his superiors to launch the operation. After informing his superiors of his plans, and in light of the bloody raiding and taking of Charlie McComas, Crook had this too. General Sherman issued orders on March 31st that Crook was to pursue the Apaches, quote, regardless of department or national lines, end quote. Third, knowledge of where the Apache were hiding and a reliable guide to get him there. And here you can see how Peaches was the right guy at the right time. 
Crook immediately had the man brought down to Wilcox, where the general was busy planning his operation to question him thoroughly. But wait, I hear you cry. Didn't you say that Crook needed four things? Well, yes, yes he did. The fourth and final obstacle to tackle was making sure the Mexican army and or government did not interfere. After the dust-ups involving commanders ignoring the boundary while chasing Apache, the Mexican and American governments had signed a treaty on July 29, 1882, so the previous year than what we're talking about right now, which said that troops from either country could cross the border if needed while in hot pursuit. That was nice and all, but Crook's operation was hardly hot pursuit, as he was planning something a bit more massive and would move at a comparatively glacial speed. So he did the only sensible thing. Crook went down to Mexico to negotiate for himself. Stopping in Sonora and Chihuahua, Crook met with civilian and army officials to propose, well, part of his plan. Always one to play things close to the vest, he didn't let Mexican officials on what the true thrust of his strategy was. But the Mexicans, who'd been dealing with the Apache for much longer than these upstart Americans, were eager to help in any way, so they gave their tacit approval for Crook to do his thing. And this is a remarkable concession, given that one of Crook's main methods was the use of Apache scouts, which the Mexicans thought was just lunacy. Even after Crook had gotten them to swallow how vital the scout's role was, they requested a way to distinguish between these scouts and any other Apache in the heat of battle. This is where the scouts adopted their uniform of a red headband, which they would wear through the rest of the Apache Wars. These concessions in hand, the general returned to Arizona with all four pieces of the puzzle now firmly in place. However, at the same time he was planning his attack, some of the Apache were starting to think about saving him the trouble. With Hua now gone from the Chiricahua main camp, a peace faction, which had been kept locked down by the domineering warrior, began to increase in power. We've already seen how two of Bonito and Chato's men had approached Mayor Hildo Grijalva about the current conditions at San Carlos, and these two men were dispatched again at the end of April 1883 to contact Rihalva and start the process of some of the Chiricahua coming in. And they met with Grijalva a week later at his ranch in Arizona, and then were taken to Fort Thomas to speak directly with army officials there. However, the officials failed to grasp what this could really mean, so they passed the buck to San Carlos, saying merely, quote, they professed to be from the hostile camp in Chihuahua and to have been sent to see Agent Wilcox with a view to returning to the reservation. You can listen to their story. End quote. After having passed the problem off, they, I don't know, closed the DMV service window and went back to reading their book or something. With Crook already down near the border and out of telegraph range at this point, the men were interviewed by Lieutenant Davis and they said they could provide the current mindset of the Chiricahua. And they also offered the intriguing update that Charlie McComas was still alive and was in Bonito's camp. As if their presence wasn't enough, still more Apache would arrive at San Carlos. It turns out that Colonel Lorenzo Garcia, 
The Mexican officer we met in episode 94 that had smashed Geronimo's stretched out line at Aliso's Creek had wound up being caught with his troops in an Apache ambush, something that they had just barely managed to extricate themselves from. Following this fight, a group of 21 Cheheni, mostly relatives of Loco, were separated from the other Apache, and instead of heading to find them, they decided instead to go back to the reservation. And this group would reach San Carlos in mid-May, having somehow just missed Crook's giant operation that was even then descending on their Apache brethren. However, now we can get back into the ominous foreshadowing. In a sign of things to come, Wilcox, the Indian agent at San Carlos, actually refused to issue rations to these individuals, which perplexed pretty much everyone around. Instead, he told the army that they should lock the group up and punish them, despite them being the same people that had literally been kidnapped by Geronimo the previous year. Sweeney says this was done in a bid to undermine and or sabotage Crook's plan, and it would not be the last time that Wilcox made some very questionable decisions that didn't seem in the best interest of his charges. The other bit of ominous foreshadowing is that while the Chiricahua waited to hear about possible peace feelers from San Carlos, they decided they needed more supplies. And how do Apaches get supplies? Yup. Two groups were organized to head into both Sonora and Chihuahua on raiding expeditions. One group was to round up more stock animals for the band to use. The second, headed by Geronimo, was explicitly going out to take hostages. The Apache hoped to use these potential Mexican hostages to trade for their people that had been taken captive during incidents like Elisos Creek. Geronimo and the 36 men with him left on May 6, 1883, several days after the first raiding party. Neither of these parties had any way of knowing that even then, the unstoppable force that was General Crook was not only in Mexico, but was practically on their doorstep. So join me next week as Crook unleashes his full, bold plan to invade the Sierra Madre Mountains, find the hidden Apache camps, and make them surrender once and for all. Though it will not work as well as Crook hoped, the physical and psychological blow it landed meant that he would return to the U.S. with many a subdued Chiricahua Apache in tow. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.